We are in the book of Deuteronomy this morning, Deuteronomy 31, and then we'll also look at Romans 7 later, uh, but we're continuing our series on grit. Back in 2005, the movie Walk the Line came out. It's the story of Johnny Cash. And I remember the first time I saw the trailers for that movie. And you know what I thought? I'm being totally honest and transparent with you. First thing I thought when I saw that trailer was there is no stinking way that Joaquin Phoenix can play Johnny Cash. Joaquin Phoenix is a weirdo. There is no way he can be one of the greatest singers who ever lived. And yet, doggone it if he didn't do a great job. If you've ever seen the movie, I mean, it's fantastic. He even did the singing. So yeah, I, I apologize to you, Joaquin, not that you care what I think, but uh, you, you nailed it. Now, there's a scene in that movie that I, I wanna tell you about. And, and if you've seen it, you know this scene. It's not the most comfortable scene to watch, but uh, it, it deals with, it has to do with what we're gonna talk about today. So the, the setting is that Johnny Cash, after a kind of a hard upbringing, a dad that was really hard on him, he's finally hit it big. He is now a, a superstar. And he bought this big, huge house on a lake outside of Nashville. And it's Thanksgiving, and so he's invited his parents to come. He's invited June Carter and her parents to come, and they're gonna have Thanksgiving together. And he's really hoping to impress them, right? He's really hoping they'll look and see and say, okay, you've really done good for yourself, young man. And the first thing his dad comes up and says is, well, it's not as big as Jack Benny's house. Jack Benny was a comedian back then. And, and then the next thing he says is, hey, what's that, uh, what's that tractor doing stuck in the mud down there uh, by the lake? And, and Johnny says, well, you know, just couldn't get it out. And he says, well, that's an awfully expensive piece of equipment to treat that way. So Johnny's a little mad, right? Because his dad has just dismissed him and has just uh, refused to acknowledge his, his accomplishments. And so in the middle of the meal, he decides to lash out at his father in front of everyone. You know, makes for a very cheerful Thanksgiving, doesn't it? And, and so this is, this is Ray Cash's response in the movie, Walk the Line. I, I went back and, and watched the YouTube video so I could get it right, okay? He says, you're sitting on a high horse, boy. I never had talent. I just did the best I could with what I had. Can you say that? Mr. Big Shot, Mr. Pill Poppin' Rockstar, who are you to judge? You ain't got nothing. You big empty house, nothing. Kids you don't see, nothing. Big old expensive tractor stuck in the mud, nothing. If you watch the scene, it's a great piece of acting because you, know, you see Johnny Cash smile like he's thinking of something smart to say back, but then the smile fades as he realizes, you know, you nailed me. That's everything you just said about me is true. I have gained all this earthly success, but I'm still not a good person. I'm a terrible husband. I'm a terrible father. I'm still an unrepentant addict, and, and I just... I'm empty inside. And so the scene ends as, as everybody is leaving, because that's pretty much the end of Thanksgiving dinner, and they're all getting in their cars to drive away, and, and Johnny's down there by the lakeside on that tractor just gunning the engine as hard as he can, trying to get it out of that mud hole, because there's got to be something in his life that starts moving forward. So we started this series four weeks ago about grit, and actually, I planned this series a year ago when I went away to plan this, the, the year's uh, series. And at the time, my thought was, well, there's so much in the Bible about endurance, perseverance, steadfastness. It's obvious that's something God wants us to have as Christians. And I thought about us as individual American Christians and how we seem to struggle with sticking to it. And, and so four weeks ago, when we started this, we talked about how so many are dropping out of church 
And it's just not a priority anymore and how we need grit to stay with the body of Christ because that's where God is doing his work on earth. And, and then the next week we talked about how we have difficult times we have to walk through. That was a hard sermon for me to deliver. I just have to tell y'all because that Sunday I'm standing here talking about rejoicing and suffering and I'm looking into the eyes of people and I'm knowing what they're going through. And, and so it kind of got me choked up. Uh, but we do, we should have enough grit to rejoice in our times of suffering. And, and we talked about how that's possible. And last week we talked about the doubt that you sometimes feel as a believer. Sometimes how your faith can be so fragile, but God is not. And he doesn't give up on you when you're, when you're struggling with your faith. Today, we're going to talk about how to get unstuck. Because every one of us has been there, and some of you probably are there now. I am not the Holy Spirit, so I don't know exactly what you're struggling with. But there are probably people here who would say, yeah, I haven't made any progress in my spiritual walk in a long time. Maybe it's just a terrible habit that you can't seem to get over, like the way you lose your temper when uh, at the smallest little provocation, the way you say harsh things that, that hurt people you love, or maybe the way you talk about people you don't like, or, or maybe it's the way uh, you, you just, you can't can't stop buying things for yourself because you just that's that's your your bad habit or maybe it's a, an actual chemical addiction that you have never really dealt with and it's making your life miserable and you don't know how to stop or maybe it's not something you do so much as something you know you should be doing but you're not you know you should forgive that person who hurt you. You know you should be compassionate towards those people who don't have as much as you. You know you should find a ministry in the church or outside the church and start using your gifts to, to serve God and to advance his work. You know you should be generous with your money and support the work of God. You know you should reach out to somebody in the name of Christ instead of just asking someone else to do it. None of us is perfect. We all struggle. We all have our sins and our flaws that we're, we're working on. The, the problem is there are too many Christians I know that aren't working on it at all. They're just stuck in one place. They're not making any progress toward the Lord. And that's an awfully, awfully, awfully valuable thing your life is to leave stuck in the mud. That's something that, that God created with his own hands and redeemed with the death of his son. And yet we're going to say, okay, thank you for all you've done, Lord, but I, I'm just going to stay here. You're going on. You're moving forward. You're doing good things. God never sits still, but I'm just going to stay here and, and check in with me later. Well, let's talk today about how to get unstuck. So we start with a, a group of Israelites standing in the desert, just across the Jordan River from modern-day Israel. That's the promised land. There's an old, old man standing in front of them, Tens, actually hundreds of thousands of people standing there listening to an old man giving his last speech. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is. It's Moses' last speech to his people. And he says, I'm 120 years old. I've led you this far. Your parents died in the wilderness because they were faithless. I want you to be different. I want you to be different. I can't go over that river with you. You're going to have to go without me, which must have terrified them. Because you think about it, they have grown up with one leader their whole lives, and that's Moses. He's the one that parted the Red Sea. He's the one that went up on top of Mount Sinai and came down with the tablets of the Ten Commandments in his hands. He's the one that every day met face to face with God. Who else did that? And now he's not going to go with them. Now he's going to die on the mountain, and they're going to have to cross without him. They're probably thinking to themselves, man, if our parents couldn't get it done with Moses in the lead, how can we get it done without him? So he anticipates their fear. And here's what he says 
in Deuteronomy 31.7. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So Joshua has been Moses' right-hand man since day one. He's been absolutely loyal. He's been devout. He's been courageous. And yet Moses doesn't stand Joshua in front of the people and say, you see this guy? This guy is the best man I know. He'll get you there. No, he says, you're going to make it because God will go with you. God will go before you. Now, can we all just be honest? And maybe, maybe not. Maybe you're more righteous than I am. But my experience is when you're going through difficult times and you're just struggling and some well-intentioned Christian comes along and puts a hand on you and says, it's okay, God is with you. Your first gut level reaction tends to be, okay. I, I mean, that sounds good, but what does it really mean? I can't see God. I can't hear his audible voice. So what benefit is it for you to say to me, God goes with you. God is with you. God bless you. Well, we're going to find out today how to get unstuck because God will go before you. But first, let's talk about why we get unstuck in the first, why we get stuck in the first place. Because if you were raised like I was, if you're raised in an evangelical Christian background, not just Baptist, but any Bible-believing, uh, revivalist kind of tradition, then you were told from an early age, if you come to know Jesus, you're born again. In fact, that's the moment you're actually saved. You're not saved the moment you, you, sign a, you sign up your name on a church roll or the moment that your parents got you baptized or dedicated. You are a believer when you're born again. It's like your life, if your life is a line graph, it's, it's, it's trending downward and then suddenly you meet Jesus and it spikes upward. As Paul says, if you are in Christ, then you're a new creation. All the old stuff is gone and new things have come. All things are made new. And that's wonderful news. So the question is, why don't we just keep tracking upward? If, if Jesus has come into our hearts and has changed our lives forever, then how come my line graph looks like the Dow Jones Industrial Average, right? It's, it's up and down and there's, right now we're in a bear market and I'm hoping for a bull market. I mean, you know, why is it that way? And Paul explains it to us because Paul, if you don't know his writing well, especially in Romans, what he says now in Romans 7.14 is going to surprise you. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Does anybody else feel that? Does anybody else resonate with that? The very thing I don't want to do, the very thing I hate, that's what I end up doing. And the things that I set out to do with great intentions, I never end up doing them. This is Paul speaking. And by the way, by the way, he's talking about himself at the time. He's using present tense. He's not saying I was that way and then Jesus came and changed me. He's saying I still have that old nature within me, that old self, the old Paul. Just like I've got the old Jeff in me and you've got the old you and you once you know Jesus and it, it dies slowly. All right, so verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. 
Think about that sentence. Take that sentence seriously. Nothing good dwells in us, in our flesh. We need to reckon with that, with that sense of depravity. For I have the desire to do what is right and not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So what do we know about Paul? We know that he was Saul of Tarsus. When he talks about the law there, the law was his, the foundation of his life. And the law means the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Paul built his life on that law. He knew all 613 commandments in it. He became a Pharisee, which they were the elites when it came to following the law. Paul, in his own testimony in Philippians 3.6 says, according to the law, I was blameless. Doesn't mean I was perfect. What he's saying is, if you would have followed me around 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you never would have seen me sin. You never would have seen me fail to keep the Sabbath. You never would have seen me gawk at a pretty girl. You never would have seen me tell a lie or utter a curse. You would have never would have seen me fail to give my tithe and fast and pray when I was supposed to. I lived a blameless life. And therefore, Paul became a sort of celebrity among his people. You know, mamas looked at their boys and said, be like that. Fathers and, and young men said, I want to be like you. He was a rising star among his people because of his devotion to and his zeal for God. But it wasn't enough. He wanted more. He wanted to be the best of the best. And so when he heard about this group of people, these Jesus people who, who worshiped this crucified man, he said to himself, well, that's heresy. That's blasphemy. Deuteronomy says, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. So how can a, a man who has literally been cursed by God be the son of God? And he determined that what God wanted him to do, what, what would get him in good with the father was if he just declared one man war on the Christians. And he did. And whereas the leaders of his people previously had threatened and had argued, he went further. He actually dragged them out of their homes and threw them in jail. And he saw that some of them were executed and he just made their lives miserable. And when that wasn't enough, he decided to go to another town where some of the Christians had run to. And that was Damascus in Syria. And on his way there, guess who he meets? The last person on earth he wanted to see. And that was Jesus himself, the risen Christ. And it changed Paul's life forever. But you know what? While it changed his life in many, many good ways, one of the bad things it did was it made him realize what a sinner he was. Paul never realized what a sinner he was until he met Jesus. Because then all of a sudden he saw, I am blameless according to the law, but it has made me even worse than I was before I knew the law. C.S. Lewis loved the way he put it. He said, you know, of all the bad men on earth, none are as bad as religious bad men. Of all the bad men, religious bad men are the worst. Why? Because if all you have is religion and you don't have Jesus, if all you have is religion and you don't have the gospel, you become intensely proud. You become arrogant. You become judgmental of anybody who doesn't live up to your standards. And let's face it, almost no one does. You, you get into a very us versus them mindset where all those people who aren't like you are the enemy who must be conquered. And that's what Paul was. He was a hateful man, a violent man, a terrorist, literally, because of religion, because of religion divorced from gospel. And so in Romans 7, he's talking about himself. He's saying, listen, that old self is still there. He doesn't tell us what specific sin he still, sins he still struggles with, but he's still struggling. And his point to us is, this is why we're stuck, because we're sinners by nature. 
We're so sinful, we can even take a good thing like the first five books of the Old Testament, a good thing like the kind of religious tradition you were probably raised up with where you go to church and you follow the commandments and you obey your parents and you do all the right things. We can even take good things like that and twist them into bad things that we use to beat other people up with, that we use to draw, drive other people away from God, that we use to feel superior. But thank God... That's not where the passage ends. Paul continues in verse 21. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul there tells us two things we need to do to get unstuck. And y'all, I got to tell you, I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you, especially this week, because I don't know who here is struggling with what. I don't know who here is in a place where they've just decided, I'm just no good and I will never be any good. And you need a word that says, no, you can win. And I don't know who here is, is just complacent and they got to a point in life where they're like, meh, I'm good enough and you're stuck in a mud hole, and you won't get out. Because mud holes can be pretty doggone comfortable. I don't know who here needs to hear this, but the Holy Spirit does. So this could be a day of deliverance for somebody in this room. This could be a day of where you look back on your life and say, that was the day when I started getting serious, and that was the day when I started to experience victory. So what does Paul tell us? He tells us to get unstuck. Number one, we need to take full responsibility. Notice that Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, you know, it's really my parents' fault because my mom was just not nurturing enough and my dad was was way too harsh. He doesn't say, I didn't have good teachers. They didn't warn me about these struggles that I would have. He doesn't say, it's because I'm part of the faithless people of Israel who kept stumbling in in the Old Testament times and, and, and how can I be any different? He doesn't say, it's because of all these godless Greeks that we live around and their perverse ways have, 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 have been a, a bad influence on me and have changed my heart. No, it's all me, he says. Oh, wretched man that I am. Y'all, I know you're not gonna like this. But it's true. Until you make full confession of your sin, you can't get better. Now, now we, we belong to a Protestant tradition, and so we don't believe in, in going to a priest and confessing because we know that everybody in Christ is a priest. Everybody in Christ has that ability, uh, has that direct connection with him. And, and, and so we don't do that. And yet, James tells us, the book of James tells us, confess your sins to one another. So what does that mean? That means there's a power when you, sit, when you have a, a trusted friend who you sit down with and you say, let me tell you about some really dark things you don't know about me. Let me tell you about some of the things that I do or some of the things that I don't do or some of the thoughts that I indulge in or some of the patterns that I engage in and have that friend listen and say, you know what, I still love you and Jesus still loves you. Or to stand up in front of your life group and say, while we're praying for people who are sick and people who are struggling, I want y'all to pray for me because there is a sin that I am struggling with and I'll tell you what it is and I need for your strength and I need the Lord's grace to get me through this. And that's how revivals begin. And even if you don't say it to other people, just saying it out loud in your own home or writing it down on a sheet of paper or typing it on 
a computer screen. I am a greedy person who never seems to be able to get enough. I am a gossip and I'm constantly tearing other people down to make myself feel better. I am a person who struggles with looking at certain images that, that degrade the way I look at women and I need to change. I am a person who can't forgive anyone who has ever made me angry writing those things out or saying them out loud instead of just a generalized, oh Lord, bless me and forgive me for all the ways I've failed you. No, but actually getting specific. It's a lot harder to make excuses when you say it out loud. I am a harsh parent who, who is too hard on my kids. I, I, I'm too impatient with people who love me. I'm a bad employee who, who is lazy whenever the boss isn't around. Whatever the case may be, saying it out loud, writing it out. There is a power in that that is irreplaceable. That's the first step to getting unstuck. But secondly, you can't do it without this part. Call on God for help. When, when Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Understand something. If you are saved today, if you're a child of God, it's because at some point you prayed that prayer. Maybe not those exact words, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But at some point you said, whether you were nine like I was or whether you were 99 or anywhere in between, you said, Lord, I know that I can't save myself. I need a savior and you are the only one. Please rescue me. But here's what we don't know. Here's what we weren't trained for from, by most of our churches, and that is this. You need the gospel just as much after you're saved as you did before. Now, that's very counterintuitive, so let me say it again. You need the gospel just as much after you're saved as you did before. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says God is on your side. No matter how many times you stumble and fall or how bad off you are, he will rescue you every time. doesn't mean you have to get saved again. You only have to do that once. But every single day, you need to call upon his grace and say, Lord, I can't do this without you. So when Paul writes out those words, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that is such a beautiful promise. He's saying, I called on him and he answered every single time. And he continues to do so every single time. He is the one who gives me the strength. He is the one who delivers every single time. So let's go back to that question I, I asked at the first. What does it mean that God goes before us? How, why does that encourage us? Well, think about the man who said those words in Deuteronomy. That's Moses. Moses is telling the Israelites, I can't go there with you. You're going to cross that Jordan River and the people aren't going to roll out the red carpet. You're taking their land from them. You won't be able to just move in and, and put up your pictures and set up your man cave and watch the football game. I mean, you're going to have to fight for this. You're going to face walled cities. You're going to face giants in the hill country. You're going you're to face armies that are going to gang up together against you. And they're going to be defending their lives to the death because these, they're going to be defending their homes to the death because they think this is theirs. And God says, I'll go with you and I will fight alongside you, but you still have to fight. You still have to fight. The Israelites had to fight all those battles. Two weeks from today, Lord willing, we're gonna start a new series on the book of Joshua, so we're gonna talk about the rest of this. We're gonna talk about how that campaign went. And I'll give you a little spoiler. The Israelites win every battle except one. And the one battle they lose is when they chose not to follow God. And you'll hear about that, I think, the second or third week of the series. But, but here's what I want you to understand. They won all those battles, but still, 
They lost lives. Every one of those men, when he took up his spear and his shield, he knew, I could die today. This is real warfare. God is with us, so I know we're going to win. Doesn't mean I'm going to survive. Those women, when they said goodbye to their sons, their fathers, their husbands, they knew he may not come back. Y'all, what I'm saying to you is, it's time for us to get up out of that mud and start fighting alongside the Lord for the salvation, for the renewal, for the, for the sanctification of our souls. We are saved by grace, but becoming a belief, becoming a child of God, I'm sorry, becoming like Jesus is a team effort between our work and God's power. We don't save ourselves, but we fight alongside God to become sanctified, to become like Christ. So what does that mean? I don't know. It's going to mean something different for you than it does for me. For you, it might mean that God's just going to give you a series of steps, that you take these little steps of obedience, and then one day you turn around and realize, you know, I used to struggle in that area, and I don't anymore. I don't even know when it happened, but now I've, I've gotten out of the mud hole, and I'm moving forward again. Maybe it's, it's that there's a, a group of people that God's going to say, you're going to have to just cut off that group from your life. You, you can't be with them anymore. They, are, they have a, a negative influence on you. Or maybe it's something in your life that has become a treasure that you treasure so much it's become an idol that distracts you from the Lord and you have to, you have to put that in its place or even get rid of it. Maybe, maybe you'll have to get some counseling for an emotional issue that you're having that, that causes unhealthy patterns that leads you into these sins or, or there's an addiction that you need to seek treatment for. There's nothing unbiblical about getting professional help for what happens inside of you any more than it's unbiblical to get surgery for a broken ankle. And it could be that he'll just put you in this process where every morning you wake up and say, Lord, I need you today. You know what I'm struggling with and you name it before him. Lord, give me the strength to be patient. Give me the strength to make good decisions. Lord, give me the strength to want the things you want from me. And it's a daily dependence. And you might say, well, well, why does it take so long? Why doesn't God just, just say some magic words and all my temptations go away and I can, just, I can just walk comfortably down the road of righteousness? And I don't know the answer to that question, but I have a, I have a theory. So, so I, true story, I was, when I was a youth minister, I was preaching one time and I just happened to mention that I knew several Christians who struggled with alcoholism. And I said, you know, those people... They have to fight that battle every day. And a guy in the congregation literally stood up and said, no, sir, it's not the way it works for me. He was a longtime member. He said, no, the day I accepted Jesus, I never wanted another drink of alcohol after that. And of course, that was like the second sermon I'd ever preached in my life. I'm like, good for you. And I I meant it. I mean, hallelujah. And God can do that. And I've, I've heard other people give a similar testimony, but you know what? They're the exception because every other person I've known who struggled with addiction, alcoholism or, or drug addiction, they'll tell me, this is something that I'm going to have to fight the rest of my life. And some of them will say, yeah, it's been 20 years since I had a drink and it's getting easier the longer I live, but I'll never be able to just say, okay, that's not a problem for me. And others, they're in that stage where they're like, man, this is a daily struggle. This is like, I'm calling my sponsor every day for advice. I'm praying hard. I'm on my knees. I'm just staying away from certain places that trigger me. And you know what? Those are some of the best Christians I know. You know why? Because every day they have to depend on the Father and they know it. Every day, they have to submit to somebody else's guidance, a human being who, who keeps them accountable and who tells them, you need to stop this. And, and, and so they've become so humble and gracious 
so dependent on the Lord and they just can't feel superior to anybody else. And so they've become the best believers I know, far better than so many buttoned up people like me that never struggled with things like that. See, what I want to say to you before we leave, before we worship the Lord with a couple more songs, don't leave today without confronting whatever it is that has you stuck. And if you're not stuck right now, good for you. Keep pressing forward and reaching for the prize. But there are many of you, I'm sure, in a room this size who would say, man, it's been a long time since I've made any real spiritual progress. So confess it to him. I mean, while we're singing these songs, you have my permission to be in prayer. Go home and write it out. Sit down with a good friend and tell them, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's where I'm letting the Lord down. Here's where I'm hurting others. Go to that person you've hurt and confess to them directly. Before you leave this place, if they're in this room, confess it to them. Call them up, text them, let them know. With nothing held back, no excuses, no rationalizations, no, well, you had a part in this too. Just here's what I did to you and I just wanna say I'm sorry. And you don't have to say anything in return. I don't expect you to forgive me. I just need to say, this is what I've done to you. Take full responsibility and start calling on him daily. Like your life depends on it. Because you know what? It does. If you're going to live the life God sent his son to die so you could have, then you're going to have to be dependent on him daily. That's the only way it works. And you might say, yeah, but Jeff, it's not really worth it. You know how that scene in that movie, Walk the Lion, ends? If you've seen the movie, you probably remember this. So he's, he's gunning the engine on that tractor, just about to blow that thing up, trying to get out of that mud hole, and then he hits the clutch, and it rolls backwards straight into the lake and gets totally submerged. And he's there in the water, totally high, so he can't swim, and June Carter's the only one that hadn't left, and she goes running into the water and drags him out, and he's laying there on the dirt, and he just looks like a drowned rat, and he looks up at her and said, you should have left me. Now, why doesn't God leave us? There's a God who is on the march, on the move, with a mission to save the world. Why does he take the time for people like us who are literally stuck in the mud? Because that's what we're worth to him. Because when we were drowning in our sin, Jesus came and rescued us. He became our sin. He died in our place. And if we're worth that to God, then we're worth fighting for. And that's the promise. If you need a word of encouragement, this is it. He will never stop fighting for you, ever. The question is, will you fight alongside him?